You're listening to the Calvary Church Audio Experience, designed to empower and encourage you throughout your week. Hey, what's good, everybody? Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. While you're going there, I want to welcome everybody online. Can you believe it? We finally made it to chapter 2. We finished chapter 1. And most of you know that we're in a series traveling through this great book written by the Apostle Paul while he was being persecuted in a Roman prison. We're walking verse by verse through Philippians. And the real thrust of this series, the common link that really ties each part together is the reality that through Paul's spirit-inspired words, we're learning how to experience real joy. We're talking about gospel-fueled joy in the midst of a world that sometimes encourages us to wear phony, superficial smiles on our faces. But we're learning that we can have joy in every area of our lives. I'm talking about relationships, circumstances, attitudes, thoughts, finances, and so much more. Take one of your hands, set it on your heart. Come on, let's say it out loud. Say, eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to receive, a mouth to confess, all the good things that Christ has already provided for me. Come on, I'm ready for God's word. And today we are going to focus on our inner attitude, on what it means to live from what I'm calling a healthy heart. And as I frequently remind you here at Calvary, one of the core promises and blessings of God's new covenant that he has given to all of us in Christ is that we have received a new heart. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel talks about this. The heart of stone that we were born with has been replaced with a heart that is soft toward the things of God. And let me tell you, this is really good news, and I'll tell you why this is good news, because even when we are struggling with our inner attitudes, I'm talking about our beliefs, even our behaviors, at the core of who we are, did you know, come on, believer, we truly want exactly what God wants for us. We do. We want God's love to characterize our lives. We want to discover and live out our purpose in the kingdom of God. We want to manifest God's kingdom in the earth. We want to be conduits of grace and truth and mercy in the lives of others. We want to be agents of change and peace and justice in a broken world, a hurting world, a dying, crying, sighing world. That's truly what we want deep down. But sometimes even though our true nature, our true hearts, our, our true selves are in perfect alignment with the, with the desires of God, sometimes the flesh, the unrenewed mind trips us up, tricks us into believing that acting independently from God will make us happier than depending upon Him. And I want you to know that this dirty trick goes all the way back back to the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. That's right. When Adam and Eve, come on, 
turned a garden into a wilderness, but thank God for the second Adam, Jesus, or the last Adam, Jesus, who turned a wilderness into a garden. Adam and Eve, they chose independence rather than dependence. You know, since most of us have grown up with a works-based view of salvation, I think we tend to think of sin as doing bad things. Isn't that right? If we avoid doing bad things, then we'll avoid sin. But the Bible has a different definition of sin, and I want you to see this. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. In other words, whatever isn't prompted by faith is reduced to flesh. Instead of judging everything in terms of good or bad works, I think it's more helpful to think in terms of spirit versus flesh or dependence versus independence. So to illustrate this quickly, let me show you three of the most infamous examples of walking after the flesh that I think are found in the Bible. Carnal choices that in some cases led to terrible suffering. Think about it. Remember Abraham, Genesis 16, Abraham sleeps with his maid. God had promised him a son, but God was taken too long. A work of the flesh that we're still paying for today. How about Moses? Moses defends a Hebrew slave. Exodus 2. Prince Moses, the Bible says, mighty in words and deeds, perhaps saw himself as a deliverer of Israel. Forty years growing old in obscurity killed off that idea. How about this? The Israelites refused to enter the promised land. That's Numbers 14. It's natural. I get it to be afraid of giants, but God had told them, he would be with them. Well, who's bigger, giants or God? And the Israelites' fear meant missing an opportunity to see God do mighty exploits. It also meant wasting their lives in the wilderness. They did not enter the place of promise because they did not trust God. What's the common thread running through these, these examples in Scripture? In each case... The person involved did what seemed right to them at the time. And this is the hallmark of flesh-based living. It's independent living or walking by sight or walking by your senses, what you see, what you hear, what you feel. It's self-effort. And when you walk by sight and without any regard for the Lord, you put yourself in harm's way. And I'm not talking here about your salvation. We're not saved or unsaved on the basis of works. But you leave the giver of life out of your choices. And you better hear me. You will most definitely reap death. And this isn't limited only to the ultimate physical death of your body. But includes all of death's progressive effects. What am I talking about? Things like sadness and loneliness and bitterness and, and illness and anger and poverty and anxiety and tension and all of this stuff. This is why our plans sometimes, I think, resemble Dr. Frankenstein's monster. We've 
tried to bring something to life and only the spirit can do that. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to death. Let me tell you something. Creation is waiting, still waiting. I think it's groaning right now in eager expectation for a revealing of sons, mature sons of God. And we don't reveal our true selves by walking in the old ways of the flesh or by our unrenewed minds. We've got to grow up. Come on. From little children to sons. We've got to move on from milk to meat. And these examples I've given you in Scripture and many more are in the Bible, did you know, for our edification to teach us how not to live. Again, it's not what we're doing that's particularly important, but how we're doing it. And I have a question for you. Are you trusting in the dead hand of the flesh? Are you trusting your senses? Or are you relying on the life-giving might of the Spirit of God in you? Are you living by faith? So today, when I'm talking about living life from a healthy heart, in the, in the spiritual sense, I'm not suggesting that there's Anything fundamentally wrong with your new self in Christ. I'm talking about your new heart, your new born-again spirit, the new redeemed, innocent you. What I'm saying is that we need to be taught now. That's why I'm here. That's why he gives gifts, pastors and teachers, to equip you, to train you how to walk according to your new nature in Christ. That's the job of the ascension gifts to the church to grow you up in Christ rather than you living according to the lusts of the flesh. And we need to be transformed, how? Not by the renewing of our spirit, but now by the renewing of our minds. And like it or not, we need an attitude adjustment every now and again. And today we're looking at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 18 for some guidance. And we're going to speed through verses 1 through 11, and we're going to focus on verses 12 through 18. And this is a powerful passage. And as we're going to see, the Holy Spirit shows us ways that we can learn to walk by the Spirit rather than the flesh. Walk by faith rather than senses. So let's read these 18 verses together. I know it's a lot of Scripture, but let me tell you something that's going to help you. And we're going to break them down in our time together. All right, Philippians 2. Let's begin at verse number 1. Come on, here we go. We've walked chapter 1. Now we're walking through chapter 2. Here we go. Look at verse 1, these four if statements. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then, verse 2, Make my joy complete. Here's what Paul's saying to the church. Fulfill my joy. Make me happy by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Verse 9, therefore, because of all of that, look at this, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, look at this, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now, much more in my absence, Paul says to the church, look at this, continue to. That means keep on. Continue to what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling or with reverence and humility. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That verse right there, verse 13, powerful. God himself is your inexhaustible inner source. He's the one in you that ignites you with the desire and energy that matches his delight. Look at 14. Do everything without grumbling. Come on, church. Do everything without arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. In other words, in the midst of a people who have forgotten their true sonship, who they truly are, this generation has become distorted and perverse. We are in an identity crisis right now. They've forgotten who they are. What does Paul say in verse 15? You shine among them like stars in the skies. You hold firmly to the word. Hold to the word of what? The word of life. And then I will be able, Paul says, to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor or do this ministry in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of service, coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice. There it is again with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Wow, we just read 18 verses. Come on, I hope, I, I, I hope, I hope you're getting this. Now, I want to get into 12 through 18, but let me quickly give you the Cliff Notes real quick. Cliff Notes version of verses 1 through 11. Here we go. Verse 2, verse 2, Paul's very joy. The key theme of the letter is tied to what? The Philippians' conduct. He's talking to the church. In verse 1, he makes those if statements that provide the platform from which he encourages the Philippians to live out the things he's trying to teach them, which are the ways that he says they will complete his joy or fulfill his joy. And the way Paul worded these if statements wasn't intended to communicate any kind of uncertainty. Instead, he's stating this in such a way that he's considering the if statements to be fact. Do you see this? In that verse, look at what he says with absolute assurance. Joy is possible. Look at this. Because there's encouragement from being united with Christ. Check it out. We should continually be encouraged, church. By our union with Christ, we are one with him. He's the head. We're the members of the body. He's the vine. And we are the branches. The sap that flows in and through the vine flows in and through us. Our lives, the Bible says, are hidden with Christ in God. We are the temple of 
God. All of heaven's resources are where? Now in us. We have been co-crucified, co-buried, co-quickened, co-resurrected, co-seated with Christ. And now we are co-reigning, the Bible says, with him. Woo, this union means that we're reigning over anxiety. We're reigning over lack, over loss, over sickness, over disease, over sin, over guilt, over shame, over discouragement, depression, oppression, recession, fear, addiction, every curse, every hex, every hoax, every hater, every betrayer, every weapon that has been formed against us, self-harm, suicidal thoughts, generational curses, joy there's joy when you remember union wow but then he says this did you see it joy is possible because there's comfort from his love it's right there in life i'm telling you the thing we need most is to know that we are loved unconditionally by our father well that changes everything then look what he says joy is possible because there's Look at it, common sharing in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit seeks to unite us, not divide us. Oh, I could spend some time right there. But then he says this, joy is possible because there's tenderness and compassion. Because we, church, have experienced God's tenderness and compassion. Now we can show that same tenderness and compassion to one another. So Paul wants them to be reminded of all four of these foundations of joy. Because he's now about to challenge them to do something very difficult. Something that none of us could do standing on our own. So he reminds us all here that we don't stand on our own two feet. We can accomplish. Here's what he's saying. We can accomplish. Look at it in your Bible. We can accomplish verses 2 through 4 because we have the foundational truth in verse 1. The Philippians are capable of completing Paul's joy because of those truths now he'll go on to show us what that looks like and his primary calling uh, for uh, three things here in verses two three and four unity humility and helpfulness toward one another Oh, that's what I'm calling this church to. Calvary, hear me. Unity, humility, and helpfulness toward one another, which he continues in verse 5 through 11 to describe as what? That's the mindset Jesus had. And then he exhorts us to have the same mindset as well. God's thoughts are to intertwine with our thoughts. We're to be people of unity, humility, and helpfulness, not people of division, people of pride, people of self-interest. No, we're to possess the mind of Christ. Did you see that? People like that. People of humility, unity, helpfulness. People like that are people who possess his mind. To possess means to what? To own. It's being one with that which we possess we're to make it our own we're to make it part of us the mind of christ is ours wow we have it it's been given to us we have the mind of christ okay what's the mind of christ it's the mind of god it's the mind of his word we can think like the word did you know jesus on earth had the mind of god his mind was a mind of glory his mind was a mind of victory think about that he never thought defeat he never thought lack he never thought outside of god's word and we church have got to meditate on god's word so that we can spit it out in our sleep it must be so 
deep within us that no one can take it away from us. I mean no one, no wavering, no swaying to the left or right. It belongs to us. It's ours. Healing is ours. You better possess it. Power is ours. You better possess it. Wisdom is ours. You better possess it. Joy is ours. You've got to possess it. If we don't know God's word, Better than we know what's going on in the stock market. Better than we know what's going on in the clickbait headlines. Better than we know the stats of our favorite sports teams. Better than all these natural things. Then don't you be surprised if we get more natural results than spiritual results. I'm talking about more worry and unrest than peace and joy. More division, pride, and self-interest than you unity, humility, and helpfulness. Let me tell you something. God's word must become more real. Now more than ever, church, his word has got to become more real to us than the word of your mother, your, your father, your sister, your brother, your friends, your doctor, your lawyer, your counselor, your favorite politician, Google search. You've got to possess it. Possess the word. And let me tell you, I could spend weeks right here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to move along. I got to move along. I'm getting happy. I got to move along. Come on. Verses 12 through 18. We're going to look at this quickly because we got to deal with attitude, inner attitude. I'm dealing with a healthy, vibrant heart quickly. And I'd, I'd encourage you right now to circle two key phrases in verses 12 and 13, which are critical, I think, in understanding the work of God in and through you. Circle the words work out in verse 12 and work in in verse 13. It's important to understand that this passage does not say work for your salvation. That work has already been accomplished by Jesus alone, whose finished work, his substitutionary work has provided forgiveness and new life. So we don't work for salvation as though through a series of personal disciplines or self-sacrifice or good behavior or, or, or fasting or, or, or uh, you know, all-night prayer sessions or, or, or whatever. We can somehow, we think if I do this stuff, then somehow, consecration, somehow, we can somehow make or maintain our relationship with God. No, the only thing we can do is to receive our relationship with God as a free gift by grace through faith. And we know that. And thank God we emphasize that hugely here at Calvary. So the scripture never teaches that we work for our salvation, but we are told to work out what God has already worked in. Now think about that. When you work out a puzzle, are you the creator of the puzzle? No. It's already created, but when you work out a puzzle, you're putting the pieces together in such a way that you can reveal the beauty of the big picture that's already there. When you go work out at a gym, think about this. Is it your job to create a muscular structure that's not already there? No. Your job is what? To exercise that muscle so that it begins to take on more strength in a way that you use it. So, so you're working out what God has already worked in. Let me say it like this. You are training for growth. I really believe the church is in a training season right now. Training for growth. Now, of course, we can't just 
blindly rip these verses out of context. I'm not trying to do that. In, in the context of this letter, going back to chapter 1, you'll remember that Paul's uh, commenting about how his imprisonment is being used to what? To embolden the believers in the spreading of the gospel of grace. And so when Paul says, therefore, in verse 12, and remember, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you've got to stop and ask, what's it there for? And in every case, the therefore is therefore the purpose of building an argument or a case of linking what the author is about to say with something foundational that he's already said. So in context, this verse is about Paul first commending them and then commanding them. And in chapter 1, Paul commends the Philippians for allowing the Lord to use his imprisonment to embolden him. And then in chapter 2, don't miss this church, he commands them simply to keep up the good work. And this is far more than a little pep talk. Nah, Paul's no cheerleader. This ain't no little pep talk. Nah, it's a deeply theological reminder what God's grace can do in and through a believer. Paul is saying in essence, he's saying, and I'm saying it to you today, church, you can continue to work out your salvation for the good of others, but the only reason you can work it out is because God is working in you. You can't do this on your own. Joining a religious organization, joining a club, joining a sect can't give you the power to become a better person or to live a righteous life, but the grace of God can. As a matter of fact, wherever you are, just say it. Grace can. So in unpacking these verses, what we're going to do next week is we're going to begin to focus on the idea in verse 13 about working out our salvation. And in essence, we're going to receive. I'm going to give you, I'm coming like a trainer. We're giving you a workout plan. And I'm not talking about a physical workout plan, but a spiritual one. So I'm going to invite you next week to come back together because we're going to start jotting some things down in the Calvary Church app. You pull up those notes. You're going to want to write some stuff down for this workout, this, this, this spiritual workout plan that I'm giving you. And, and, and let me tell you something. If we are going to begin, church, to take God's word, if we're going to begin to sow this into our heart and let it bring maturity and development and victory, then there will be steps and there will be stages along the way. Let me tell you, you cannot go from zero to a thousand miles an hour instantly. You've got to accelerate slowly. You've got to gain speed. It's the same way in the spiritual realm. When I talk about our Christian walk, when I talk about working out what's been worked in, the Bible says first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. If you don't start believing God, on a small scale and begin to work your way up, then you are not going to experience complete maturity, development, growth, victory. You won't go from being people who've never applied God's word in your lives, never meditated on the word, to all of a sudden being people of mountain-moving faith to overcome. And on a side note, I just want to say, it is not smart to wait until something hits the fan before you start believing God. It's sad to see so many people falling apart right now 
calling themselves believers, falling apart like a $2 suitcase in the middle of everything that's going on. I guess they never learned to trust God. There are steps and there are stages. There's a spiritual exercise working out what God has worked in. And so next week, we're going to look at the five ideas that Paul communicates for living from a healthy and a vibrant heart. But I guess before we go, I can just give you one. Just real quick. I won't go deep and do it, but it's too good to leave it. I got to give it to you quick before you go. And it's simply this. This is one of five. We'll come back next week. It's found in verse 13. Are you ready? Exercise this. You got to remember that God is with you, in you, and for you. You've got to remember that God is with you, in you, and for you. And when you understand what Paul's saying in verse 13, it can begin to transform the way you think about what it means to live this Christian life. And as I've already mentioned in this series, the Christian life is absolutely impossible to live. You can't do it based on your own willpower. You can't do it in your own strength, good intentions, self-reliance, whatever. And God's designed it this way on purpose so that you will come to the end of yourself and have no other option except to rely on him. What does that verse say? For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That's why I encourage you. Look at that work. That phrase works in. Look at that works in. The word work is very important here. It's the Greek word where we get the word energy or energize. I just want to tell somebody the idea is that God is the energy supply. He is the power source. He is the internal power plant for living this otherwise impossible supernatural life in the midst of everything going on. And I hear people in recent days saying stuff like this, Pastor Ben, I just don't think I can face what I'm facing right now, I know that God says he won't give me more than I can handle, but I just can't see how I can make it through this trial that I'm facing and all this stuff we're facing right now. Well, the Bible actually doesn't say that. I think you may be thinking about uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where God promises that you'll never be tempted beyond what you can handle. But when it comes to challenges, living in this sin-scarred, fallen world, we will always face more than we can handle by ourselves. Yeah. And I hope you're getting this, church. I really do. I heard someone recently talk about a book they read, and the book was called, you know, Tough Times Never Last, But Tough People Do. And I don't really like that title because it suggests that if, if you're just tough enough, then you can endure through temporary tough times. You can handle it. But for some people, let me tell you something, tough times do last. They go on and on. And I'm thinking about writing a book entitled, Tough Times Seem to Go On and On. Woo. But weak people realize that God's grace is enough. The love of God reaching down and gathering you in his arms. 
the confident assurance that with God on your side, you can't lose. I know they said you're going to lose, but believer, you can't lose. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, the power of God in the middle of unbearable pressure. Grace is Jesus. Jesus is grace. And I'm not just saying he's enough. I'm saying he's everything. Ah, I could keep going, but I'm stopping right here. We'll pick up right here. There's so much more right here. We'll pick. Is that all right? Can we pick up next week? Is that all right? Wherever you are, unless you're driving, don't close your eyes. But wherever you are, just close your eyes for a moment. And I just want to say that choosing to receive Jesus, everything, as your Lord, your caregiver, your bread provider, your Savior, is the most important decision you'll ever make. And by His grace, God's already done everything to provide exactly what you need. Your part is simply to believe and receive. And if you've never done that, you can do it right now by praying this. Come on, pray it out loud. Everybody just say, Jesus, I confess that you're my Lord and Savior. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And by faith in your word, I receive salvation right now in Jesus name and I thank you and I'm going to start enjoying it amen now listen to me I want to walk with you I want to help you as a matter of fact I have partners in ministry I call them online pastors who are right there to connect with you and help you and introduce you to Grace Walk. Listen, I don't care where you are. I want to walk with you. I want to help you understand who we are as a church and who you are now as a believer and how we live as believers and how we change our world. And so Grace Walk, check it out, calvarychurch.cc or on the Calvary app. You can join the movement. We want to walk with you. You can grow in what's just happened in your life. And so no matter where you are, you may be in Arizona or Barcelona. It really doesn't matter. We want to connect with you. You can be right here in Texas or anywhere around the world. We want to walk with you on this grace walk. We love you. I got so much more. We'll pick back up with my good friend Kareem Hickman next week. Don't you dare miss it. I'll see you soon.